you have your Bible today, I hope that you'll take your Bible and turn to the cha- uh, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. The lady's going to be coming in from the choir, so scoot over and let them uh, have some room as they're coming in. Luke chapter 8. We're talking uh, uh, in a series called Fearless, how to be fearless and how to protect your family. I heard Charles Stanley early this morning. Uh, I, I was awake. I was, I was done with my devotions and flipped on just to see what Charles Stanley had to say. And he, he asked this question, do you love your mother? Well, of course. And then he asked this question, have you told her? You know, it's, it's not enough to say, I love my mom, but have you told her? And even more than that, have we shown her that we love her? And today we're going to be looking at it from maybe just a little different perspective because it's not just about telling or showing your mom, but what can we do as parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, what can we do to minister to families? How can we protect our family? Well, let me ask it this way maybe. What's the most terrifying moment you've ever had in your life? What's, what's the moment in your life that you are most terrified? Now, not the scariest movie, not, not something Steven Spielberg did. What a real-life moment. What's the scariest moment you've ever had in your life? I can share one that was probably one of the most terrifying moments in my life. Our oldest son, Chris, at that time was just beginning to walk, and he didn't walk particularly well. He didn't have a lot of balance. We had just moved to Iowa. I was finishing up my last year in Bible college, and he came tottering down the hall off balance and... Bam! He smacked the wall, and blood just began to spurt everywhere. He cut his mouth inside, and, you know, if you, if you tried to look, then he cried. If you didn't look, he cried more. I mean, it was a no-win situation, and we couldn't get it stopped. We put ice on it. We did all the things. We had just moved to Iowa. We didn't have a pediatrician near. We didn't know what to do. Finally, I called, I think, the emergency room, got hold of some doctor, and this is what he said. Inside of the mouth is one of the toughest places to stitch up. So we said, how deep is it? How long is it? Put some water on it. And of course, that meant more tears and more blood. I mean, we looked like some gore movie because every time he would breathe out, he would just, you know, all these little spots of blood everywhere, all over the hall and the apartment that we'd rented and our clothes. And I mean, it was terrible. And finally, he said, look, from what you have told me, I think it will heal up. If you can calm him down, get him to go to sleep, probably in the morning it will, it will close up on its own. It will it'll clot. It'll be okay. Your child will not die tonight. That was a terrifying moment, but that was not the worst moment. The worst moment is I'm, I'm an early riser, so early in the morning I got up the next morning and I went to see him and I expected to see, you know, we'd cleaned him up and we'd put him in nice new things and put him on a clean sheet and put him in his bed. When I went in, it looked like the chainsaw massacre. There was blood everywhere. Well, what I didn't know is blood and spit together really can make it look like there's a whole lot of blood, but there was blood on the wall and the crib and it was... I remember thinking this, am I up to this challenge? Can I do this? Can I be a dad? I've just blown it. My child is going to die from running to me down the hall. Can I do this? It was a terrifying moment. I began to think of things like, do I have enough money? We were barely making the apartment rent. Uh, what am I going to do for clothes? He's bled out over everything. What are we going to do? You know, food. We used to go to the grocery store, and I would say to Kathy, we have all the money you want to spend at the grocery store as long as it's not over $22. That's what we have this week for groceries. To this day, I do not like macaroni and cheese because we would buy whole stacks of macaroni and cheese. That and the cheapest hot dogs. You know, we would get the hot dogs. They don't say pure beef or pure pork. They just say pure something, you know. 
And we would eat those all week long. And I thought, we don't have enough food. What am I going to do for that? I thought about his education. I thought about the activities. What if he wants to go in sports? How are we going to afford that? How can we do this? Can I be the dad that I need to be? We loved music, and we were hoping that he would grow up to sing. What can we do about his career? And, and even then, I thought about, you know, who's going to want this malformed mouth as, uh, you know, to, to be their spouse? You know, you think all these crazy things at 5 o'clock in the morning, and he's sound asleep and perfectly happy. I'm in the midst of this horrible time. And I thought about his health. If I couldn't protect him from walking down the hall, how could I protect my child? And you see, in Luke chapter 8, we have a huge lesson. A, a, a man comes, and a 12-year-old that he loves dearly is dying. And he knows it, and he comes to Jesus, and he, and he asks for help. And look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, verse 50. It says, hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Be fearless. Be fearless. Just believe and she will be healed. How can we protect our families? That's really the question. And, and here's where we're going. Protecting your family is not a one, two, three thing. It is a step-by-step -step process. You have to every day commit that child again to the Lord. You have to every day take another step with the Lord. You're not going to have it all lined out for you. It's not going, and my experience is going to be different from your experience, and your experience is going to be different from the person who's sitting next to you. But God says, I will guide you in this journey if you'll walk with me. Protecting your family is a step-by-step -step journey with Christ. So what is the best protection for my family? If that's true, on this journey, what's the best protection? I mean, if we get ready to go on a, on a trip, we know what we're supposed to do, right? How many of you have ever taken a vacation in the family car? Raise your hand. You know Chevy Chase and the, the, the family and the family truckster and all the stuff on the aunt, I think, ends up on a rocking chair on top because she dies? I mean, great, you know, great meaning and depth to movies that I see, okay? But Jairus is saying, hey, listen, there's a protection, and this is the things that you need to know before you start the journey. What's my best protection? Let's read the story. We're going to start in, in verse 40 and go through verse 49 to begin. It says, now, when Jesus returned, returned from where? Well, we looked at he, that he was on the Sea of Galilee, and he's come back from the other side, from the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, and that's on, on one side of the lake. And he comes back from the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. For they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. I want to stop for just a minute. It doesn't tell us specifically what it was. It appears that it was a gynecological type of problem, but we don't know for sure. But she had this issue, and she could not take care of it. Mark tells us that she'd spent everything that she had. She had literally made herself poor, and she couldn't take care of this health issue. So go back. It's verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak or his robe, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, 
Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And that seems like an odd thing to put in the middle of this story about Jairus. But look at the next verse. You'll see what's happening. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. You see... The whole reason that there's this interlude, this stop, is to, is to put a stop on the story so that there would be time for this person from the house to come and say, hey, it's too late. What's the best protection for my family? I see here three things. Make sure Christ is central in your life. Make Christ central in your life. How desperate was Jairus? He's a ruler in the synagogue. What does that mean? It means that he was over the building and the maintenance. It meant that he was the one who organized the services. It meant that he was, was way up in the Jewish strata, strata. He was one of these guys that was, everybody looked up to him and that he had respect. And how desperate was he? Does he stop and say these, these flowery things? No, he desperately comes and says, help, help. That's a huge gamble. Did you realize that Jairus, when he came and did this, because of what Jesus has already done, he's already, he's already performed several miracles. He's already called himself the Son of God. He's already said that he was the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's already said that what the Pharisees are teaching is not what God intended. And, and Jairus knows that what happens when he comes and asks for help from Jesus, he probably loses his job. He certainly loses his status. And all of a sudden, his life is different forever. And what does he say? He says, Lord, come. Did you, did you notice it says, come to my house? You know, there was a centurion that we read about in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, and he said to Jesus, I have this one that I care about deeply, and, and this one is sick. Can you heal them? And Jesus said, yes, I'll go with you. And the centurion says, you don't need to. You can do it from a distance. You can do it from afar. God does not have to be present in your home. And And the centurion knew this, and Jesus says, I've not seen such faith as this anywhere in Israel. But Jairus doesn't want that. He wants Jesus in his home. He wants him to become central in his home. Do we? Do we want Christ present in our home? Do we bring him in just maybe when we say prayers before the meal? I mean, that's a good thing. You should do that. I I grew up... We could never eat food without saying a prayer. And kind of the joke was, well, we had prayer for dinner, but this dessert, it's a lot of calories. We probably need to pray again. I think that was to ask for forgiveness what we, for what we were going to just eat. But that was kind of the thing. Well, you know, if you went and you paid more money, if you went out for pie or cake afterward, you prayed again to, to thank God. And we bring Christ in in that way, but is Christ really central in our home? Is he central in our life? If you want to protect your children, that's what we're talking about. It's kind of like, and I, I always revolve around foods, I guess, but, you know, if you're thinking of a whole pie, we're thinking, well, I'm coming on, on Mother's Day, I'm coming once a, a, a week on Sunday, and I'm giving God an hour, and if the guy talks a long time, it may be an hour and 15 minutes, it may even be an hour and a half. Today, the way I'm going, it'll be an hour and a half. No, no, I'm just kidding. But I'm going to give God a slice of my time. I'm going to give him this thin slice. There's 168 hours in a week, I believe. And if you take one hour out, then you've given God one, 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 six, one, one six, whatever it is. 164th of a, of a week. 168th of a week. If you give God just that, is that enough? God says, I don't want a little slice. I want the whole pie. I want to permeate your life. And I guess maybe I look at it this way. Um, 
someone here in this church, someone who is evil and has horrible intentions, told me about Costco's gooey cinnamon buns. She shall remain nameless. I will not use the name Terry Welch in describing this person. She brings them warm to Sunday school, and she says, oh, you need to try these. And I had just started another diet, and I said, no, you shall not make me eat this cinnamon roll. And then she did the most horrible thing. She lifted the top, and the cinnamon wafted into the whole room. And lo, my hand reached for the cinnamon roll and ate it greedily and wondered if I could dare sneak another one. No, it wasn't her fault. You see, if she had not introduced it to me, I would have walked through Costco another time and I would have smelled the cinnamon and I would say to Kathy, they're calling me. I can't go anywhere there's a Cinnabon and walk by Cinnabon because the cinnamon, the, the smell... You know what? If you, I don't know anything about cooking, but I'm pretty, willing to, pretty much willing to bet cinnamon is not the main ingredient in that. I think there's more flour, there's more butter, there's more of, of the cream cheese icing... There's more a lot of other things, but it's not that which gets me. It's that which permeates the room. It's like walking into a theater and saying, I'm not going to get the popcorn, and they pop it, and the butter is on it, and you say, the large size. And God says, I want to permeate your life so that when people are around you, they, they get this sense of who Jesus Christ is from the way you live, from the way you act. Acts 17, 28, Paul is describing for some, some people on Mars Hill. He says, for in him, for in Jesus Christ, we live. That's how we live. Because he lives, we live. In him, we live and we move. We can't make a motion without him. In him, we have our being. The essence of who I am is who Jesus Christ is as he lives in me. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul says. You make Christ central in your life. What are your deepest convictions? What in my life am I willing to die for? Is it Jesus Christ? Do you make him central in your life? Number one. Number two, ask Christ for help. Urgency stripped away all formalities. He fell on his face. This man that he could have come up and said, Rabbi, I hear that you have power. He could have come up and, and said all these flowery words, and he doesn't say it. We're not told anything about his speech other than he just says, Help me. Help me. He was pleading for the life of his daughter. I was reading through this story one time, and I ended up going to the hospital just a few hours after that, and I was going to see this family that had not been a regular part of the church in Amarillo, Texas. And as I walked in there, I was, the, the story was still on my mind, and as I was dealing with them, they had just, told that their four, they had just been told their four-year-old had cancer. And as I was dealing with them and praying with them, I said, you know, I just am reminded of this story of Jairus who came and and he asked the Lord for help, and I want to ask the Lord for help. And this, and this mother said to me, I don't believe she was a believer at the time, she said, well, Pastor, if Jesus were available, I'd go to him too. And I said, oh, he is. You can pray right now. You can access the throne. It says in Hebrews, come boldly into the throne of grace, and you'll find mercy in time of need, in time of, of want. You pray. You see, the problem is, is we don't understand prayer. Uh, David Jeremiah talked about prayer one time. This is the way he, he said it. He, he said, uh, I, I came across this prayer, and I think it's my prayer. Dear Lord, so far today I'm doing all right. 
I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish. I have not been self-indulgent a single time. I have not whined, complained, or cursed. I have yet to charge a penny on my credit card. Lord, I'm serving you today. Now, as I prepare to rise from bed this morning, I need your help more than ever. That's the way we ought to pray. You're not even out of bed, and you're thanking the Lord for the little bit of success you may have had, but there's so much more of the day you can pray. Lamentations 2.19. I love this verse. Jeremiah is, is, is writing, and he says, Arise, cry in the night. As the watches of the night begin, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children. Over the last few weeks, I've been, I've been doing more and more exercise and bike riding, and as I've been doing that, it dawned on me that I've got this perfect place, and I've found myself not even wanting to ride with other people because as I was going and, and riding about 15 miles away from home, it, it took me about an hour, and as I was out there riding for this hour, I began to pray for, for Nicholas, our grandson, for, for Lincoln, our grandson. I began to pray for Ashley and for Josiah and, and for my grandchildren. And I began to pray about their health and about their education and, and about their careers. I began to pray about the spouse that God would give them. And I've been doing that more and more. And, I, and the more I do it, the more I want to do it. And I'd love to say I did it for my kids. I didn't do it enough. But you can do that. You can pray and ask the Lord. Why did Jairus wait so long why didn't he come earlier before his daughter was at the point of death because he had tried everything in his own power and we we do the same our infants our children our preteens our teens are at risk and we seem unequally or equally unaware of the critical situation ask christ for help the third one is wait for christ to intervene Jairus, Jairus was frantic, but we, sometimes we have to wait on the Lord. The Lord begins to move, and as he begins to move, this crowd is there, and Jesus appears to be in no hurry. He's frantic. He says, come now. She's dying. You, you need to come now. We can't wait. It's time. Come now. And the Lord begins to move, and the crowd is big, and it's taking time, and all of a sudden, he stops and says, who touched me? I love Peter's response. You know what Peter's response is? Lord, who hasn't touched you? Tell him it'd be easier to talk about who has it. What do you mean who touched you? This guy's frantic. Come on, Lord. I can just see Peter. Come on, Lord. Let's just go. Come on. Let's. And, he's, and he's just kind of corralling him and moving him along. And the Lord's taking his time. And you know what? The Lord didn't have to stop and say, who touched me? He, he built in a pause. Because he wanted to prove to Jairus that God's time is not necessarily our time. And when it seems that all hope is lost... It's the time for, the, for Christ to intervene. By the way, the woman was desperate too. Did you notice the same 12 years that Jairus' daughter, she, she was 12 years old, she's had this issue for 12 years? You've had this disease for 12 years. Do you understand she couldn't go to the temple? She couldn't ask for forgiveness for her sins? She couldn't bring a sacrifice because she, she was unclean. Because of the blood and the issue in her life, she could not come. She was not even supposed to be in that crowd. She, whoever touched her was to be unclean. This woman was violating the law as she knew it, but she was so desperate she would do anything. And she was too desperate to even say, Lord, help me. So she just reached out. And you know what? It was not the miracle of touching the, the garment. It was not that Jesus' clothes were miraculous clothes. It was that she had enough faith that even if I touch just the hem of his, of his garment, he's powerful enough he could do something. 
Do you have that kind of faith? And because we don't wait on the Lord, we go to our extremes. And what we say is, the Lord hasn't done anything, so let me do it. I'm going to, here's two extremes. I'm either going, and, and Max Lucado does a great job of this in the book by the same name, Fearless. He talks about those parents that, that go to the extreme. They're the prison guard extreme, you know. They're the parents who, who they're so tough on their kids. They're paranoid parents. They're, they're always wondering if their kid's going to get hurt. And they'll let them go play, but by the time they get out the door, they've got so many pads and things on them, they can't even play a sport. And, they have to, and, and they're so overbearing sometimes as the parents because they're trying to do it in their own power. They're trying to protect their child. And the other extreme is they say, well, the Lord's going to take care of them, so I don't have to do anything. And so they give them a lot of hugs but no discipline. And they never teach them the things that they need to know. They never sit them down and say, this is not the way we act because Christ is in us. And Jesus forces Jairus to slow down, to wait on him. I want to stop here for just a second because there's also one thing that this brings up. What about those of you who are listening to this message here or maybe even on the radio, and you said, "I, I brought my child to the Lord, and I gave my child to the Lord, and I asked the Lord to heal this child, and he did not answer. My child died. Max Lucado has the best answer for this I've ever read anywhere. This is what he says, Jesus saved Jairus' child. Why doesn't he save yours? I don't know. But God understands your heart. You see, God buried his son too. And this is what Max Lucado says. Your child may not be in your arms, but your child is safely in his. And he'll turn your child back over to you one day. Romans 8.32 says it this way, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We have to wait on the Lord. And sometimes the Lord's timing, it seems, stinks. And it seems sometimes that he's not answering your prayer. But I want you to know God is sovereign and God does have an answer. It just may not be the answer that we want. The best protection is to make Christ central in your life, to ask Him for help, and then to wait for Christ to intervene. But what are we supposed to do? How should I proceed if that's true? Well, let's go back and see what happened to Jairus. And I think he gives us the key with two things briefly. Luke chapter 8, verse 50. This is what it says. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus... He did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. I think it's interesting that that's added. Father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. She goes from from death to life. How should we proceed? Two very simple things. Number one, follow step by step. Follow Christ step by step. Knowing Jairus' state of mind, knowing what was going on his, in his mind, he didn't outline, now Jairus, we're going to go into the house, I want you to get your wife and we're going to do all these things. He didn't give him all the instructions, what does he do? He takes him step by step. 
So many times we think if the Lord will just lay out his whole plan, then I'll know everything he's going to do. And the Lord never works like that. We always see him taking us step by step by step by step. Almost never does he give us a view of all of the things. He just says, follow me. So Jesus kept it simple. Trust me, he says. He took both parents. He told them to stop wailing. And then he went in and did what he was going to do. Jeremiah 10, 23 says it this way. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Jeremiah understood that. Jeremiah is told by the Lord to go and to prophesy and to preach, and he does. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, I want you to be a faithful servant. We never have anywhere in Scripture where Jeremiah sees someone come to the Lord. He has a ministry where he never sees any converts. No one that he sees comes to know the Lord, it seems. And yet Jeremiah follows the Lord step by step by step. And Christ's directions seem contrary to the facts. A woman's dead and the people are laughing and they're saying, Jesus, you don't get it. She's not alive. He said, she's sleeping. And they said, no, 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 no. She's not asleep. She's dead. Jesus never refers to the death of a believer as death. It's always they're sleeping. Because when he opens their eyes, he's the one that opens the eyes, either to life here or to life there. The Bible gives really simple instructions about parenting. We don't get that. I, I went to the computer and I typed in, I used the Bing search engine instead of Google this time, and I, I just typed in parent, uh, parental instructions. I got 74.6 million hits. I looked at all of them. Not really. So I went to Amazon and I, and I put in books on parenting. Did you know there are over 100,000 books you can buy today from Amazon on parenting? I was so confused. There's a man by the name of John Rosemond. John Rosemond is a believer, and he's written a book called Common Sense Parenting. And he says, all I want to do is give you what the Bible says. And, and just a couple of things that he said that I thought were so amazing. He says, the Bible says the parent influences the child in a big way when the child is small, and a small way when the child is big. So that's what the Bible says. Well, that makes sense. Train up a child when he's young. He also says in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 says there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. He says, I think there are seasons for parenting. Then he breaks it down into three. There's a season for service, a season for discipline, and a season for mentoring. The season for service is when a, a child, a newborn to two years of age, parents, moms, do you have to serve those kids until they get two? Is that a time of service? Oh my goodness. That's the nurturing. That's the, that's the taking care of their every need. And, and, and it seems like it's 24 hours a day. The nurturing mother functions as a servant to the child, anticipating, responding, doing for the child is what the Bible says. But between the ages of two and three, the, the mother should begin to make a transition between the season one and season two. And the mother redefines herself according to the Bible by firmly taking the child out of the center of attention. Ooh, huh, that's a, that's a new idea in our society. The child's no longer the center of attention, he says. And once that transition has taken place, Susan, season two begins, the decade of discipline from three to 13. Again, he says, the Bible says this is the most critical season. The Bible tells us that your job as a parent is to provide leadership and authority and discipline in a loving way to that child. And he says the Bible also this is what the Bible says. He says the Bible predicts the child will rebel against that authority. I don't know where in the world you would get that. 
It says, but it's an essential part of training a, a child in the way he should go. And then the th- season three, the season of mentoring is from ages 13 to 18. The parent's job is now to help the child acquire the skills to successfully emancipate or become independent. He says, what's happened in America is that often the female parent is being frozen in season one as the nurturing servant, while the husband is never in any of the season because he just wants to be the child's best buddy. He says, according to the Bible, we've mixed up some things about consequences. And I'll end with this part in this, in this uh, what John Rosemond says. He said, American parents are fooling around with consequences. When yesterday's child misbehaved, the child felt guilty. When today's child misbehaves, the mother feels guilty. That's what he says. You know what? I think he's right. And he takes all of that, every one of these is followed up by Scripture. He takes us from a biblical perspective. It's very simple. And we think, oh, it's a step-by-step thing, and so I'm good at step-by-step, right? You all good at following step-by-step instructions? The last time I got a piece of furniture, it came, you know, don't you love it? You go and see this display, and it's a beautiful, it was kind of a china cabinet thing. And Kathy said, ooh, that would be perfect in the kitchen. We'd measured it. It was perfect. We got it at Ikea down in Sacramento. They put it in the back of the car, and I loved it. I just backed the car up, and I wasn't paying attention. I looked, and I said, oh, they put the wrong thing in. It was about, oh, it was about that thick about four inches thick and it weighed about 400 pounds just that one little package and i got it home the only thing you had to put together was well they painted it other than that they you know you put everything you put the drawers together and you put the handles together and you put the glass in the thing and you did had all these things to do and i was almost done and i was so proud of the fact that i had the instructions out and i said this is from ikea so their idea of english is not exactly my idea of english most of it's just pictures but I was feeling really good, and I'd put the back on it. There were fi- I'll never forget, 52 screws to put the back on. I was so proud, and I got them along the shelves. I lined them up perfectly. I was so proud of myself, and I stood it up and realized that I'd put the back on backwards so that the painted side was against the wall. And I'd run the battery out on my cordless drill. And the Lord and I had a little discussion. You see, the problem is we don't follow instructions on simple things and we don't follow instructions on the most important. Follow Christ step by step. Here's the last one. Trust Christ for the journey. Parenting is not for the faint of heart. It's not a part-time commitment. In the Old Testament, Naomi is going with her husband to a far land. They take their their sons and, and their sons go with them. There's a famine. and Instead of staying there in Israel and trusting the Lord, they go someplace else. And while they're gone, her husband dies, both of her sons die. They've already married, and so they have wives. And, and so Naomi's thinking, I'm just going to go back to Israel. And now I'm a widow. I don't have any sons left. My, my daughter-in-laws don't have any children. I'll just go back by myself. And, and it doesn't happen. Because her daughter-in-law says, no, 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 no. You've become my mother. I'll do the journey with you. Ruth 1.16 Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. The story of Ruth is one of the most incredible stories in the Old Testament. You see, beyond the daily step-by-step, we need to abide to become a part of the people of God. We have to join the family. And that's what Ruth did. 
John 15:5 says, I am the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains or abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide, remain is used 82 times in the New Testament, most of the time by John. It means to continue, to stay in relationship, to be consistently integrated into. It means we get input, strength, wisdom, nourishment from being in Christ. And the results are fantastic. It's fruit. It's more fruit. It's much fruit. It's you're going to be a productive person. You have to decide that you're going to trust Christ for the journey. You're going to have to trust Him. In those days when it seems like you're not being very productive, you have to trust Him in those dry seasons, in those famine seasons. You have to trust Him that one day the fruit will come as you remain in Him. And I guess I'll close with this because it's the, the best illustration I have found. There's a there's a man in Georgia who loves the Georgia Bulldogs more than anyone I ever known. His name is Steve Trailer. We went to see Steve. He's actually our oldest son's wife's stepfather, if you can get that. That's kind of a tough one to get. But Steve Trailer's a great guy. He loves Georgia, the Georgia Bulldogs. He loves their football team more than life itself. When we went to his home, he has a whole basement room that is full of Georgia Bulldog stuff. And he's so proud. This is the one this quarterback signed. This is the one that the coach has signed. And he's been after me. There's a, a coach by the name of Mark Richt. Uh, and he just says, you need to know this guy, the University of Georgia football coach. You know, I like pro teams. Well, I can't really say that. I like the Chiefs and the 49, 49ers. But I like semi-pro teams. But I was just never gotten into the college football that much. Some of you are thinking, semi-pro, I don't get that. But I've, I've never been into the college football teams, but I started looking to Mark Richt, and, and an article came across my desk this last week. Mark Richt is an interesting guy because he was going to be a quarterback, but he ended up backing up in his football in his college career one of the best quarterbacks that's ever lived, and then he went to a pro team where the best quarterback that's ever lived was there in Miami. So he never really got to play much. He was just a backup quarterback the whole time. But he was a very intelligent guy, and he got a job with Bobby Bowden. Bobby Bowden, the University of Florida football coach. And one day at, at the end of the, the game, the, some of the kids said, we're going to go out and have a party. And in the midst of the party, someone got angry, someone not from the University of Florida, and pulled a gun and shot one of the football players in the head and killed him. That next morning on a Saturday morning, Bobby Bowden called all of the football players together and, and to the locker room. He placed an empty chair in the middle of the, of the whole locker room. And he said to all of the players, and Mark Rick was there as his assistant coach, and he said, to all these players and Mark Rick, he was the only assistant coach there. He said, what if that had been you? What if somebody had come and shot you? Where would you be today? Where would you spend eternity? And Mark Rick said, you know, I was a, I was a good church-going guy. I, you know, I went Christmas and Easter and a couple of other times a year, but it never dawned on me. He said, Bobby Bowden then told me about Jesus Christ coming, Son of God, Son of Man, that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to pay for everything wrong we've ever done, and that we could have a relationship with Jesus Christ if we just trusted Him. And if we did that, we could have eternal life. And if we died, we'd go to heaven. And he said, Bobby Bowden, this football coach that I, that I looked up to and honored so much, changed my life that day, 1985. He had married Catherine. And he went home and told her what had happened. And she accepted Jesus Christ. 
They have two little boys, John and David, and Catherine said, we had more to give. And they were flipping through some, one of these magazines, and they saw one of these magazines that says, come adopt a child in the Ukraine, and they had a picture of a little girl, and she had a facial deformity. This little girl was uh, two and a half years old by the time they got there. She weighed 18 pounds. Her name was Anya. Parents gave her up because of the facial deformity. They said, what can we do with this child? It's a facial deformity called Proteus syndrome. And and the problem with Proteus syndrome is it continues to get worse. She's had 18 surgeries now. This was in 1999 when they went to get her. Two and a half years old. And Mark said to himself, who will adopt this child? Who will adopt this little girl? Probably nobody. But he said, I think that's my daughter. I think that's my little girl. So they went and got her. While they were there, they saw a little boy that was in the same orphanage, not a brother of Anya, but a little boy. And they asked about his story, and they said, well, we don't really know for sure what his birthday is, how old he is, because the police went in one day, and they found him abandoned in an abandoned apartment in a drawer. And the police were called because he was crying so loud. And he was in an abandoned apartment with no heat, and he was just left there to die. Zach is his name. He was three and a half, they think, or about. So they took them both home. They adopted them both. It's one thing to say, let's adopt. It's another to depart on a lifelong commitment, they say. This journey for the rest of your life. Anya is now 13. 18 operations later, she still has massive deformities of her face. Zach is 14. They're American through and through. They help their dad on football game days. They go down there and they help fill the Gatorade cups to see Anya filling the cups and handing them to Zach. They're, and they have their Georgia Bulldog gear on and they're so proud. Anya was asked by ESPN what she's learned from her father. And she says, this is what I learned. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It matters where, what your heart looks like on the inside. She said, I don't really much care what people think when they look at me. I know what I look like on the inside. Football seasons come and go. Family is a constant that does not change, Mark says. Mark says, we've been given these two children, we've given these two children our heart and our love, but we've been blessed with two wonderful children as a result. And Catherine, when they asked her to sum up everything, she said, you know what? We've gained much more than, we've been, than we have given. When I think of consistent living and turning your child over to God, I think of Mark Rick, this incredible young man who has incredible talent as a football coach. But you know what? I'm a fan of the Georgia Bulldogs now because I see Mark Rick and what he's done in his testimony for Jesus Christ. Here's my question. Mark Rick one day had to answer the question, if that were you and that empty chair represented your death, where would you spend eternity? And Mark Rick knew that day he didn't have a good answer. Do you? On this Mother's Day, we've talked about how to protect your family. The first protection you need to have is Jesus Christ living in your life. Jesus Christ paying for everything wrong you've ever done. If you'd like to know more about how to do that, you come and talk with with me or we're going to have some people down the front. You can come sit in one of these chairs in the front at the end and we'd love to talk to you about it. Let's pray. What an awesome God you are, Father. What an amazing God. Because you loved us before we loved you. And you saw us as abandoned orphans much more than Anya or Zach. You saw us not because we were left in some drawer, but because we were shaking our fist at you and we were orphaned from you, God our Father. 
So we want to be part of the family. And Father, we can't pay our way in, and we don't do it by joining a church. You told us we do it by believing, by faith, by trusting that what you did on the cross was enough to pay for everything wrong we've ever done. That believe that as we believe that Jesus died and was buried and rose again, that as we believe that, that's what it takes to be part of your family. So thank you, Father, for that simple truth. Thank you for loving us, not with just a facial deformity, but a life, a soul deformity, that you reached down and you healed us. Now may we love you. May we live for you. And may you become the center of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.